Hello and welcome to the Press Gallery, the Edmonton Journal's politics podcast. I am your host, legislative reporter Emma Graney, and this is the I Hope You're Sitting Down edition with me today, Dave Breckenridge. Hello. Haven't had you on for a while. How's it going? It's good. It's good? Yeah. Bo- he's in here like a boss. Because like he's a our boss. boss. <laughs> you always point that out, too. <laughs> it's a memory to, to remind herself not to say anything stupid. Paula Simon, City Columbus. Always here like a boss, even though I'm not the boss of anyone, including my new puppy, as she frequently reminds me. <laughs> the cutest puppy in the world. And Stuart Thompson back, special guest, even though he was going to leave us last week. Yeah, came and all I- the way in from the National Post <laughs> just for this. <laughs> it's the other half of the Edmonton Journal newsroom. Oh, bless. Um... So we're going to be talking about, it's the end of sitting this week. It's both hooray and oh, a little bit of, you know, a bit of sweetness there. So we're going to take a look back at session, some of the themes, the big topics, the highlights, the lowlights. But first, we're going to talk about a different type of sitting, about the government sitting on reports. This is, of course, about the wildfire report, which was released yesterday, late um, <laughs> what are some of the, what did you take away from this, Dave? Uh, that it was a bit of a gong show, I think, to, to put it mildly, that there was significant problems in communication between the provincial firefighters and the municipal firefighters that hampered uh, the response to the fire. Um, and these are things that can happen in emergencies, but um, it's the kind of thing you don't want to happen have happen in emergencies. And it just... I'm more frustrated about all the political follow to the report than the report itself. It's, you know, it is, there's a lot of damning information, but I'm more frustrated about the NDP's response to the report. I would agree with you. The report itself isn't that scathing. Now, I'm Australian, so I've grown up around bushfires and seen terrible bushfires where people are literally incinerated as they try and leave uh, an area. In fact, that happened to about 160 people, and one of the big problems there was communication, which was... Um, identified in this report as something they need to get on top of. One of the big things was the radios. That they don't res- first responders don't all use the same radio system. And they told us yesterday it'll take it could take up to five years before they all are. I, I don't think I have to say they deserve credit for commissioning the report. The report seems to be very thorough, mm. and it, it oh, hi- there are two of them too. Yeah, There's yeah. KPMG and MNP. There yes. are two. And they highlight some significant problems. I mean, th- the fact that the municipal fire department was not told that they were going to be needing to be evacuating right then and there. I mean, th- I mean, the, the the communication breakdown seemed to have been so fundamental, well beyond the fact that they couldn't talk to each other on the radios. But the fact that the you know that the regional municipality of Wood Buffalo had to get some of its most critical information from from Twitter and news reports instead of from from the province. That's uh, you know, that's a fundamental problem. Issues about the fact that the province simply wasn't prepared for a wildfire that early in the season and that this is the impact of climate change. I mean, you know, probably 10 years ago, it wouldn't have been a bad thing to wait your wait for your wildfire preparations until May. But now, clearly, in a time of uh, changing climate patterns, we're going to have to be ready for wildfires much earlier in the season. So the information in here, it's probably not surprising that there were screw-ups in such a crisis that no one anticipated. The really important thing is, how do we learn from this? How do we improve this for next time? I don't think it's so much a scandal or an outrage that the government mishandled the fire. I, I'm really concerned about how the government is handling the report and the fallout from it. Yeah, that, I mean, I was thinking about what the um, 
the AG said about health in the House. When you're debating it in the legislature, maybe don't politicize it so much because that makes the minister make bad short-term political decisions. And you could make a case for this, that this is a disaster that happened and there aren't a lot of disasters that go very smoothly i mean that's just the nature of a disaster Mm -hmm. and uh it's very important to do these reports and to sort of look at them soberly and to say this was a mistake we need to fix this which they did after slave lake and there's you hear a lot of different things about how effective those reports are in the implementation of the recommendations after slave lake um but it kind of does need to be a depoliticized environment and we are at a point now where the Wild Rose had clearly been politicizing this, but, you know, the Wild Rose has been doing that because Brian Jean lost his home and it has had a very hard edge to what everything he says. And I would, from speaking to him many times about the Fort McMurray wildfires, it's not fake. Like, he's not politicizing this in sort of a cynical way. He's just really, really mad and upset about what happened in the city. And I think it makes him overreact and that filters down to the rest of the party. So... There is some kind of political point scoring there, um, but I think it is affected by Brian Jean's personal stake in this. So you could have made a case the Wild Rose was unfairly politicizing this at times, and now the government's completely lost the high ground on that because they seem to have politicized this report, and they seem to have been... They've tried to be too clever by half on this because you really need to... I I don't know if people listening to this would realize um, what this kind of leak means because there are different kinds of leaks, and... Uh, if you're a reporter and you know a file, you're invested in that file, like Emma and the trade file, for example, is a good one, that if you are bugging them every day and you really, really know your stuff, <laughs> if you go to them and they say, hey, we got an announcement coming in two days, and you say, look, I know this file like the back of my hand. If you give it to me a little early, I will do a story that is credible, that is a story that somebody that understands the topic would do rather than a bunch of reporters who haven't thought about this before. And that can be a compelling argument to somebody in that department. And then strategically, to their advantage, they leak it to you or they give it to you in advance. Yeah, a government leak as opposed to what this was, which was someone probably pissed off that the government had been sitting on this report since March. Which we don't see a lot. MNP reports since March. They've had it since March. And the CBC reporter in Fort McMurray got a leaked copy of this report, which would perhaps point to the fact that Fort McMurray folks wanted to see this report out there. Now, when we asked um, Forestry Minister O'Neill Carlier about this last night at the press conference and said, why did you guys sit on this? His statement was that it was out of deference to the people of Fort McMurray. We didn't want to overshadow the anniversary. And yeah, I can't even tell you the words that nearly came flying at rapid pace out of my (laughs) mouth once he said that. Even I won't say them on a podcast because they were not kind words. That's because you're bought, you know, <laughs> yeah. bosses as in we the, were reminded. Bosses in the room. I, I'm typically pro profanity in the office, <laughs> but yeah, we're, we can keep the podcast clean. But <laughs> it, it was an, it was to say that the people of Fort McMurray wouldn't want to see a report about how the fire was handled come out as soon as it was ready. Instead, what the government did was sit on this so that they could turn around and say, oh, out of those 10 recommendations, look, aren't we good? We've done some work on them. That is not what you... Well, it is what you do, I suppose, and it works out terribly because you end up, as as you were talking about, Stuart, mm-hmm. politically now, they just they just look terrible. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the NDP is pro-transparency. They were elected about 
let's all be transparent. But they let's haven't been the transparent. They, well, they have a record of not being a transparent government, a lot like their predecessors. And this is just another example of that. This is a very good example of that because they had it for three months and just wanted to wait until politically it looked better when they did release oh, sorry, it. Because, I mean, there is an argument to be made that is not a cynical argument to say that you, you know, you take the report, you read it over, you think about it, and then you release it and say, you know, okay, and we're, and we're going to fix these things. That is a legitimate argument. The problem with their timeline is even if we accept that they intended to release the report on Thursday, the House is no longer sitting. Yeah. They waited until there was no legislative debate mm-hmm. to release this report. I mean, it, to, to Stuart's point, if you want to look like uh, compassionate and responsible stewards and you want to depoliticize the report, you know, then maybe you do it in a way where you bring the wild rose in and you say, this is not a partisan issue. This is not an issue that the NDP, the NDP screwed up the fire because they're socialists. I mean, this is a, this is an (laughs) issue about how a complicated bureaucracy responded to an unprecedented natural disaster. And so the best way to come at it is not to make it a partisan issue, but to say, this is something we need to fix, not because we're new Democrats or wild rosers or whatever party affiliation we have, but because this is a responsibility we owe to all the people of Alberta. I mean, it's not a partisan issue that the radios of the people in the regional municipality of Wood Buffalo and the province don't talk to each other. That isn't something that Rachel Notley made happen because she hates the oil sands. <laughs> I mean, I mean, this so is so you say, Paula. <laughs> I mean, th- and this is all infrastructure that, that, that the NDP had inherited from the Progressive Conservatives anyway. I mean, there's no point in trying to make this about ideology. There's, the logic of this is that wherever you are on the political spectrum, whomever you vote for, you want the fire department to work. And so, uh, you know, there there could have been a way that they handled this that made them look like a big grown-up government that put people ahead of politics. And instead, they end up caught flat-footed. They look sneaky, even if that was not their intent. I just want to reiterate the point that these kind of leaks don't happen often. It takes somebody to be very, very disgruntled. Mm. Like You see a lot of this in the States where everybody in Trump's administration is leaking about everybody else because yeah. they're battling for turf and the bureaucracy is leaking. That doesn't happen here. Like the bureaucracy as a whole, they need to be really, really disgruntled to do this. And uh, it's a dangerous thing to do because you can get fired for something like that. And mm-hmm. uh, I think that needs to really, it really shows you what was going on here and the last thing the ndp needed was to be you know shoving two ministers in front of the cameras at 7 p.m uh, on a thursday night with a bunch of really really angry journalists and hungry so we weren't <laughs> just angry we were hangry which made it even worse so here's my question how far had this report circulated um i mean is it possible that somebody from the city council in Wood Buffalo or somebody from the Wood Buffalo Fire Department was the source of the leak. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm just, I'm not trying to cast blame here. I'm just wondering, had the province circulated the report to its partners in Wood Buffalo? And could that be the vector by which the Fort McMurray based reporter got the story? I think so. Because one of the recommendations and one of the things that they told that the government talked about they're now doing is that they're sitting down with the Fort McMurray folks and actually having these discussions. And it's worth noting too, that uh, Fort McMurray or the regional municipality of Wood Buffalo has commissioned an independent investigation into the evacuation. Because the municipality, as is the case in all of Alberta, is ultimately in charge of an evacuation. 
Now, it's not in the province's hand unless the province declares a provincial emergency, which they did not do. So it was up to the municipality to evacuate the city. And they're doing an investigation now into that. So I suspect that they have seen a copy of that they up there definitely would have been circulating. And further to um, the Brian Jean point that uh, Stuart brought up earlier, Wild Rose, I think a couple of weeks ago, demanded a, a public inquiry, a judge-led public inquiry into the Fort McMurray fire. This was a couple of weeks ago. At that point, and this further is about how it makes the NDP look bad, at that point the NDP turned around and said, well, they said this in the House, this was their messaging, what, they're not even going to wait to see this report before they get all mad and, yeah. and demand and demand a public inquiry? They're not going to wait to see and the report that we're not showing them? And they we're had not- copies of it in their hands. And in fact, it all, it, in hindsight, it all just makes me even madder. So we went, when we were asking O'Neill Carlier about it, and we said, well, do you have this report? Because we've all been asking for it. Hey, when are we going to see that report? You know, every now and again, you just ask, like, oh, it's coming, it's coming. And he said, well, yeah. I've seen it, but, you know, I haven't really, you know, oh, and he was super vague about the fact he'd seen it, but, well, you know, we're just having a look at it now. Now that I know that they'd had it already for two months at that point, more, yeah, two-ish, at least two months at that point. But for them to turn around and say, Wild Rose needs to really wait to see this report yeah. before they demand an independent one, and yet they've got a copies of these report and wouldn't even have it over then. What I'm curious about, and this goes back to the government's messaging, uh, Cheryl Oates first saying that they wouldn't weren't going to release it until and she's she's the, the government's spokes, spokes flack on they weren't planning to release it until Tuesday but when experts were back on vacation and then she said they wanted to release the plan in tandem with expert recommendations or do they still was there any mention last night of another press conference next week to no. release the recommendations? No, what they did, they had a couple of bureaucrats there give us a technical briefing. So they're handing out copies of the report as this tech briefing is going on, along with these PowerPoint slides that talk about the recommendations that were made in the report and what the government is doing to meet those recommendations, which is where all this cynical kind of idea mm-hmm. of they just waited to release it before they so could they say. could formulate a plan. Right? Yeah, which which is fine if you if you're going to wait yeah. to really. I mean, if you're going to wait a month to release it until you formulated a plan, that's fine. But then do it while the house is sitting. You don't cynically wait until three days after the house debate has ended. Uh, and I mean, I just don't understand. They they lost such a brilliant opportunity to look like they were in control of the file, uh, and by delaying, uh, I mean whatever their intentions were. It makes them look shifty, and it makes yeah. them look unprepared. And, and incompetent, because yeah. they didn't even do this right. Yeah. Because and the report isn't even that bad. Like, no, out the, of all the, of this, the recommendations, are, you know, are fine. The reports aren't that bad. So they're sitting on these reports that aren't even that terrible. No, and really, as I said, I mean, it's not... I mean, you can't hold the Notley cabinet responsible for the fact that the radios don't talk to each other yeah. when the radios were purchased by a previous government. I mean, again, why? I do not understand. And I, I always come back to this yes minister theory I have that the, that the bureaucrats <laughs> that they inherited from the previous regime are all still in place and are telling them, oh, no, 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 very bad. Don't, don't, it'll be very courageous minister if you, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, just get out in front of this stuff and you say, yes, there were problems and we're really grateful that nobody 
you know that there that there were very few deaths that you know that that people didn't burn to a crisp uh, while getting out of the city, uh, we see now that, that that's as much good luck as anything else. Mm-hmm. So then you say you, you take ownership of the report and you say, these are the problems. We're really grateful to this excellent report that we excellently commissioned and we are excellently going to solve those problems. <laughs> and we excellently accept these recommendations. Yeah, you know, I mean, you get out ahead of it. You don't yeah. wait until somebody, you know, bats you on the head from behind. Yeah, yeah. yeah. but back to the notion of waiting to release it until you had a plan in place. That never happens with other reports in the government. I, and I get we're talking about uh, independent officers of the legislature, but could you imagine an AG's report sitting on a shelf until the government had time to formulate <laughs> a plan to deal with those recommendations? That's not a transparent government. Release the report. Let us take it all in before we deal with your plan on how you're going to fix it. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, the other thing, too, is this the the frustrating thing the reason i think that they did actually plan to release it on the thursday is because my theory of the leak is they sent this out to partners and said we're going to release this on thursday it's going to be great we're going to do all these uh, recommendations and then they either said they weren't doing that or they just didn't do it and someone went well they're not doing it and then leaked it because they thought this is one more delay we've already delayed it this long and i think it was a leak out of frustration for that so to not have seen that coming it's an indictment of whoever made that decision. And uh, I think once these things get out there, you know, it's going to happen. Yeah. I mean, well, I mean, this is in, in my long history of receiving things in brown paper envelopes. It, I mean, it's <laughs> it's oftentimes once you've shared it with quote unquote stakeholders that things start to, to burble out. I mean, I've been leaked yeah. stuff by, you know, the party of the second part who was really, really mad um, at, at the government. And, you know, I mean, I, I, at one point I had a very senior person call me up and scream at me and wanted to know, you know, who in his, you know, who in his organization had leaked <laughs> me the document. And I was like, oh, sweetie, it didn't come from anybody in your organization. It came from, you know, they told two friends and they told two friends. I mean, that's, that is exactly <laughs> how this, this stuff gets out when it's, when it's the, you know, the, the secondary parties who have copies of, the document it and, exits and the bubble, <laughs> and then that's when it comes to us. Oh, and just briefly before we wrap up this fire discussion, when we saw that CBC story, Graham Thompson and I were in the press gallery at the ledge. Graham Thompson went up to the premier's office and was talking to um, not Cheryl, someone else in there, and said, um, "We need to have copies of this report now. It's out there." And they're like, "Oh, it's not out there." He's like, no, no, it's it's literally out there now. Look, and pulled up a copy of the story on his phone. <laughs> and she went, <gasps> and so then he came down and I went, oh, well, I'll just go and see the press secretary for the um, forestry minister. So I just took a wander up to the forestry minister's office, opened the door, and there are all the chiefs of staff and the press secretaries for three different ministries having a crisis meeting that I just walked straight into the middle of. Speaking, and of, they, speaking of things being on fire, <laughs> they all turned around at me and were like, Emma. <laughs> what are you doing here? <laughs> hey, just for the record, I'd really like a copy of that report. Thanks, guys. And just kind of wandered off. But now let's move on to the sitting. It did wrap this week. Um, yes, just, just before the release of this report. <laughs> funnily enough. It was three months long. Uh, now, Stuart, you were there for most Seems of it. longer. <laughs> it always does, Paula. Yeah. Uh, what were your highlights this session? Um, well, I think from the beginning, we were thinking, this isn't much of a session at all. And I'm, I, st- I think I still think that. Um, <laughs> the big thing was, if you're the NDP, the thing that they want you to take away from all of this is that they made life better for Albertans. And uh, the way they did that was they started with um, the school fees bill, 
which was um, it, it wasn't quite what they promised, but they have seen they they promised something before the election that was more complicated than they realized once they got there. I think fairly, and Minister Egan has said the school fees are not standardized across the province, so if we want to cut them in half, that's actually way more complicated than just like you know putting a ruler in the middle and uh, cutting them because the school boards define those. So. I will give them some uh, benefit of the doubt there. They did as much as they could, and they have actually started to get some kind of standardization of school fees, which will lead towards getting towards their province, uh, their promise. Um, so that is probably the thing they want you to remember from this bill, along with half of the labor bill <laughs> that they had. <laughs> and half of the labor bill was that they have uh, new job-protected leave. So if you take a sick day in Alberta, you don't, you can't get fired for that. Uh, an unpaid sick day um, that your employer can't sack you. And that is the thing that I think if they were looking to sort of define this session, it would be those two things. Um, and it would be the idea that they are looking out for you and your family on these things. So that's only two bills though. And a lot of the other bills were housekeeping and a lot of it was, you know, like tax bills that are just housekeeping and, fixing things that needed to be done because of Supreme Court rulings and just the kind of busy work that you end up doing. And when you the compare... The electricity price cap too, which the ca- they had to do before they opened yeah, the system. Yeah, and that... And that's right. And, and so that was necessary, but also it, it was announced last year in the fall session. And yeah. that fall session, when you compare the two, it was huge. Like, it was massive and huge changes across the province. And now... I think we will be seeing a little more of this from the NDP, which is that they will have two or three small but kind of, you know, family-friendly initiatives that they can then package as, you know, what are we doing for you as a family going into the next election in 2019. So they have found the session to me was marked by that, but it was also marked by uh, an opposition that was a little bit AWOL. And yeah. that, I think, was mainly due to the, you know, the, the United Conservatives. But there, there were distractions for them, like a lot of distractions. Yeah. And even just the idea of Jason Kenney being around was distracting. Like, I will never forget the first question period after the Tory leadership vote when Kenney was the new leader. And all this stuff was all of a sudden real. So now you had this merger that was speculative for a long time was all of a sudden definitely going to happen. And that it was bizarre because Brian Jean and Rachel Notley in that question period were not on the game. They were not on the ball at all. And it did seem like he was some kind of looming presence over that question period. He's such yeah, a loomer. Yeah. <laughs> I have to say, the NDP got through this session relatively unscathed. They didn't have, you know, a, a big Until crisis. Until now. Well, but they, no, they, <laughs> technically off the session yes. anyway. Yeah, so good but, point. But, you know, but they didn't have a crisis the way they had with the farm bills last time round. I mean, there wasn't... You know, there weren't huge mobs of people screaming outside the legislature. It was a <laughs> it was a pretty calm session. I mean, they managed to get that budget, which is, you know, uh, I, still have, I have I have a slightly <laughs> sick feeling in the pit of my stomach when I think about the degree of of debt and deficit that budget uh, represents. And yet, as Stewart says, because the opposition was so distracted, I mean, they came through. Uh, sort of under the radar. It was a very low-key session for them. Uh, we should talk, I guess, the, the child welfare stuff, uh, which also made them, right right up until they brought in the bill, which disappointed me, as we'll recall, um, th- they <laughs> did look like they were actually doing something useful, 
on the child welfare front. And the bill, although disappointing to me, is an improvement on the status quo. So, And they're still working on it. And they're still working on it. And there were some, <laughs> you know, amendments at two in the morning. And, mm. uh, you know, it's a work in progress. But, you know, it, it, it was, I think, for them, I mean, those, those pictures that... Uh, was it Larry Wong who took those photos of uh, Brian yeah. Mason and Rachel Notley mugging for the camera when it was all over? Uh, you know, I, I wanting I, your dreams, isn't it, Breck? That yes. photo of <laughs> Brian <frightening>. Mason. <laughs> he's holding up the. If you haven't seen it, guys, he's hold, listeners, dear listeners, he's holding up the corners of his mouth with his fingers. Looked a little a bit deranged like deranged clown. Yeah. <laughs> I did tweet a, a copy of it if you want to go check it <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I think that overall the session went well for the NDP for a lot of reasons that have been discussed. Um, I think that the infighting on the right and the PC leadership race and some of the social media scandals that blew up in Kenny and Brian's jeans face over GSAs and things like that, yep. I think distracted from... Uh, the ability of the opposition to hammer the NDP on their budget and on their economic record. And I think that what you're seeing now with the NDP is they're starting to shape up their messaging for the election two years from now. Mm -hmm. I was, uh, I made a crack that it was kind of, it's going to look a lot like Stephen Harper's uh, federal campaign when he was campaigning for, as Warren Kinsella called it, Tim Horton's votes. They started with school fees and they ended with playgrounds. They're looking for yeah. parents. They're looking for regular Albertans. You're not going to see a ton of extreme mm. bread and butter NDP policies. You're going to start to see a lot of uh, we're good for families. And I think that the the conservatives, the, U, the UCP or the Wild Road, whatever it is after July 22nd, I think is going to have to work hard to deliver some solid messaging. Because if you look at what happened to Brian Jean in the 2015 election, his one message was, we will not raise your taxes. That's all that I can remember of him from that campaign. Mm. And with uh, a government offering uh, what certainly would appeal to a lot of parents in Alberta, a lot of families, a lot of regular working people, the conservatives need to do better than we will cut the budget. They need to come up with a better broad platform, then we will repeal everything the NDP did. Well, the Brian Jean, it's, they, when you're talking about messaging, Brian Jean, of course, has already got his catchphrase, which is, ax the tax, to which the NDP have their catchphrase, which is, making life better for Albertans. Yeah. So they've already got some catchphrases, yeah. so yeah. look forward to more of that. Well, you know, and, and the other thing is that, uh, I mean, Notley did well. We've discussed this in the past. The fact that... Um, uh, she's positioned herself quite comfortably as the champion of pipelines and the fact that, you know, the economic forecasts for Alberta are not as grim as they were 18 months ago. So, you know, there are all kinds of factors beyond it's her control. saying a lot, though. They were pretty <laughs> freaking <laughs> out. Pretty freaking bad. But, you know, I mean, hey, uh, Saudi Arabia has broken off diplomatic relations with Qatar because of Russian hackers. Who, because of the orb, know, Paula. It's because of the orb. You know, I mean, a good shooting war in the Middle East is, you know, that's all Rachel Notley really needs. <laughs> um, the One of the things, too, that they have had to react a little bit, there was that... Um, case that happened earlier this week about the um, sexual assault victim 
And they've had a few cases like that where they have had to kind of react. And, and they have can, taken ownership at that point and, and, and gone, this see, is terrible. You can see how they've improved. I mean, their handling yeah. of the Serenity file, as I have discussed at length on this podcast, was <laughs> abysmal. It was how not to handle a crisis that you inherited from a previous regime. Uh, so I have to say Justice Minister Kathleen Ganley deserves full props this week for her political stick handling of this terrible case of a an Edmonton woman who was a sexual assault and you know, a violent assault victim. I mean, the, the, the man who stabbed and sexually assaulted her was charged with attempted murder. Um, it was a terrible case. And she was homeless and had some mental health issues. And the Crown and the judge thought it was prudent to remand her. She spent five nights in the remand center, testified in shackles because they were afraid she wasn't going to turn up. Uh, uh, later on, a, a QB judge, uh, Eric Macklin, wrote a scathing report uh, a scathing judgment saying that they had had no legal basis to to hold her and that that, that was appalling treatment. And uh, kudos to the CBC. They, they beat us twice this week. Um, <laughs> Janice Johnson of the CBC uh, uh, had the story first this week. Uh, and Kathleen Ganley, the justice minister, got out there and said, we're setting up an independent inquiry. We're bringing in a senior lawyer from Manitoba to do an investigation. We're setting up an internal review committee to make sure that this doesn't happen again. Uh, she looked proactive. She looked like she was taking responsibility for, for a mistake that had happened. And uh, that is the way to do damage control, mm-hmm. as opposed to the other ways we have discussed, which are not ways to do damage yeah. control. That, I think this is that's another story of this session, is you're starting to see ministers come into their own a little bit. And Ganley is one of those ones who has always, I think, had a pretty good grasp of these things. And partly it's because if you remember um, Judge Camp, the, the you know the knees together judge, who um, that Ganley's reaction to that was pretty strong too. And these issues, I think, you get a sense from her when you're in a scrum with her that she genuinely cares and she's a, she's able to communicate and that and she's genuinely smart i yeah, mean she's, she's, she's competent she's, yes she's had she's had a very good session and that I, I, that really matters and I, you know I, I don't think i would ever accuse of previous ministers or ministers who haven't been able to convey that of actually not caring it's just a very hard thing to do when you've been giving a talking point and you're not comfortable going beyond that talking point so oh we could uh, name a few ministers here <laughs> yeah. couldn't we and that again so ganley <laughs> has done really well but i would also say as much as you know um paula you've been unsatisfied with the bill um Larry at least has been able to communicate and that, children's services yeah mostly. and children's services and that is there is a night and day difference from the uh previous minister, Minister uh, Sabir. And that, I, I think, in these matters, you just need someone who is able to convey that, that, yes, this really matters to us, and we're horrified, and uh, we are going to fix the problem. It's a tough thing to do uh, and stay on message, but they've been able to do it. Well, those are the two, I think, that have been standout ministers this session. And, and unlike you, you know the ones who can't take it, uh, messaging beyond a talking point, which is a problem, I think there are other ministers who... Uh, overreact and hyper politicize issues as well and 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 take things too far in question period and i think that you probably could pick out a few uh but those two ministers i feel are are fairly level-headed they they don't overreact to issues i don't feel that they overreact to questions um and they've performed i think fairly admirably this session ganley especially you know there's been the knees together judge there was the case this week and then just the notion of of addressing issues in the court system and and making sure that we have enough crown prosecutors yeah. uh, to deal with caseloads and stuff she's been yeah. on top and, of her and, file and, really well and the medical examiner's office yeah. you know that's in, in in the wake of serenity she you know she f- has made serious movement 
to, to correct some serious problems in the ME's office. So that's important too. Yeah. Shay Anderson has actually had to get up and answer questions. This this And he, he does a good job too. He doesn't just stick to the talking points. And even last night when he was being yelled at by reporters, I won't name <laughs> me, um, you know, he went beyond the talking points and he said, would I like to see this happen quicker? Of course I would. Of course I would. Of course I would. I want to see change here. But he is able to not hyper-politicise it as well. He doesn't have, obviously, doesn't have a justice yeah. file, doesn't have children's services file. It's a big, big file, though. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, yeah, he, he yeah. does have a big file. And, 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 he's, and this, is, this is his rookie ministry. You know, I mean, the others have had some time to get used to being cabinet ministers. Shea Anderson, as municipal affairs, is still fairly new to that yeah, portfolio. Very new. And actually, we were talking about this before I left the office there. And it, when you... When you're at, we call it ins, when the ministers are going into question period, we can stop them and get their comments on something. Um, There is such a difference when you stop Shea Anderson compared to every other minister, like his tone and the way he answers questions. It's like you're chatting to him in a bar. And it's (laughs) really sometimes it works. And sometimes you're like, this is really strange. Like he just is that kind of guy. And it's the same thing in question period where he's kind of like, well, you know, thanks for the question. I'll try to answer that. And it's like very laid back. And it actually works because it diffuses some of that tension, um, especially if it's a really hot topic. And you go, okay, let's calm down and listen to what he has to say. And he doesn't turn around and go, and you would have just made cuts anyway, which is pretty <laughs> yeah. much what every single every other minister other one. says. <laughs> yeah. Marlon Schmidt, I don't think has ever, this is the Minister of Advanced Education, has never answered a question without saying that at the end. <laughs> ever, yeah. All right, now let's move on to good stuff from the gallery, our regular segment. Dave, what do you have for us today, mate? I was thinking about this on the way, and I realized there was going to be on the podcast. And I was like, oh, shoot, I don't have anything. But actually, I do. I just finished a, a really good book. It's a fiction book. It's, I guess, nine years old now. It's called The Given Day. It's written by Dennis Lehane, who's more known for writing mysteries like Gone Baby Gone. Um, it's a kind of a big, epic American novel um, set during... Uh, the Spanish flu epidemic during the First World War, and then uh, labor unrest in Boston leading up to the Boston police strike in 1919. And it weaves in real-life events with a fictional narrative. And it follows two main characters, a black former baseball player from Tulsa who flees uh, some bad things that happened in Oklahoma to Boston, and he kind of gets in with this uh, the upper ech- this family who's in the upper echelons of the Boston Police Department, and, and the other main character is the son of this police captain who kind of strays from the family uh, belief system. And, you know, you see real-life characters like Babe Ruth in there who has some very uh, light comedic moments, and, and oh, um, cool. J. Edgar Hoover. It's a fantastic read. Neat. Uh, Paula, what do you have? Uh, I have something quite different. I think that everybody should read the transcript of Foreign Minister Christy Freeland's address uh, to the House of Commons this week, in which she laid out a new vision of Canadian foreign policy, a new vision of Canadian military policy. It's a beautiful speech, and it's sort of like a eulogy for the United States. And it was delivered on the anniversary of D-Day. And it's a very moving speech in which she talks about how America has decided to take off the mantle of being the leader of the free world and how the rest of the free world has to step up and defend a rules-based system of international order. And in any other week in which we weren't all glued to James Comey, Mm -hmm. it would be... I mean, it's an astonishing speech, and I think um, uh, marks a watershed moment in Canadian relations with the United States. Nice. Uh, I'm going to recommend everyone head over to BBC News. (laughs) 
because of course uh, the UK election just happened and my god we've got another shit show on our hands you guys uh, I know, this, but this, they, this is this is making uh, British Columbia look like a bunch <laughs> of bikers I know <laughs> I just love politics right now but anyway the I'm going to put up a couple of different links. They've got some great explainers now about what has actually happened and what it means for the UK. What an election. Stuart? Uh, I'm going to follow on from Paula's um, theme here. And this is a piece called The World Without America. And it's a New York magazine written by Heather Hurlburt, uh, who actually has held foreign policy spots in Congress, White, the White House, and the State Department. So pretty interesting take. It's not a long piece, but it is a very – it's – you know, I guess there's a hopeful side to this and a very pessimistic side to this, depending on how you see it. Um, but it is just a fascinating new world we're in now. Yep. Uh, now, just uh, for our listeners, we will not be here next week. Um, we won't? No, we won't. My parents are here from Australia. In fact, aren't they just walked by the studio. Just, I think we should make them come in. <laughs> no, no we don't want to do that. Mum's very shy. <laughs> um, so my parents... I think, I think we all want to know what, what produced Emma Green. <laughs> No, it, it's a scientific miracle. They're really <laughs> nice people. <laughs> right, we won't. We won't so embarrass Emma's parents. We um. So my parents are here, and I'm off for the next couple of weeks. And Keith Durine is actually out on assignment, and there is no one basically and around. Stuart, and Stuart doesn't Stuart's work away. for us anymore. Graham's <laughs> off as well. There's so basically the next uh, the next couple of weeks are not going to be around, but we will be back after that in July when everyone else starts going on vacation. We'll be back uh, <laughs> to talk more about our border politics. But Dave, Paula. Stuart and Sean Butts here to film some of this. Thank you for all joining me. And this will go online at edmontonjournal.com where you can find all the past episodes of the Press Gallery. You can also subscribe to our SoundCloud channel, TuneIn Radio and iTunes to get all the latest episodes. And then you'll know when we're back because it will just, like magic, appear on your phone or on your computer or whoever that little internet gnome runs around. I still don't know how he works, but that is how you'll get an automatic update. I highly recommend you do it. Hope you can join us again next time very soon for another episode of The Press Gallery.